Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scraps, a podcast dedicated to bringing you closer to the scientist and stories behind some of the most intriguing science and engineering happenings today. I'm your host, Arun Sridhar, here with my co-creator, co-producer, and co-host, Jojo Platt. As everyone with So Much So, as a pulse in the 21st century knows, shows and podcasts rely on reviews and ratings to get found by new listeners. Jojo and I would be immensely grateful if you take a few minutes to rate us on your favorite podcast platform and to share scraps with your connections on social media. We'd also like to hear from you if you have a guest in mind that you would like for us to interview or if you have suggestions on how to improve our program. With that, let's get started. But before that, we also want to say that if you haven't signed up for the newsletter, please go to our website and sign up for uh, getting email alerts. Because if you do, you'll hear firsthand when new content gets posted on our website or when a new episode gets uploaded. We thank all the listeners who have signed in. And if you haven't already done so, this is your chance to go and sign up. researcher who has dedicated your life to neuroscience and to neuroimaging in particular. You've become renowned for your technique and pattern insights that can be applied not only to your particular field of study, but also to adjacent disorders. A colleague has asked you to take a look at some scans for Parkinson's patients to see if you notice anything in particular, any specific patterns. Of course, you're a scrupulous researcher and you ensure that all of the scans are de-identified and include a number of healthy controls. Near the end of your study, as you collect the scans after finding that there was indeed a unique pattern among the Parkinson's scans, you notice one scan that is yet to be observed. But it did show all of the traits and patterns of the PD patients. The scan, a misfiled artifact from another study, definitely indicates that this person has Parkinson's disease. After ensuring that the scan was not part of your colleague's study, you asked the lab tech to check everything and finally de-identify the scan. It's your scan. It's you. You are the one showing all of these traits. But now imagine the same story, but let's replace the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease with a diagnosis of psychopathy. This is what happened to our next guest, Dr. James Fallon. Dr. Fallon is a professor of psychiatry and human behavior at the University of California, Irvine, an emeritus professor in the Department of Anatomy and Neurobiology. In addition to his experiences as a bartender, a carpenter, a truck driver, he also holds a Sloan Fellowship, Senior Fulbright Fellowship for Africa, an NIH Research Career Award. He was chair of the UCI Faculty and Academic Senate and chair of the UCI College of Medicine and Medical Center Faculty. He sits on numerous corporate boards and national think tanks for science, biotechnology, the arts, and the military. He is a subject matter expert to the Pentagon in the field of cognition and war. He's the vice chair of the American Land Forces Institute, Vatican Arts and Technology Council. He is presently the chief scientific officer of Cognigenet, a gene editing firm developing brain enhancement technologies. Dr. Fallon, thanks for joining us today. Jojo, Aaron, thanks for having me. This is, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have a lot of excitement in my life, but because uh, it's, you know, it's, it's Southern California and it's always 77 degrees. 
it seems day and night here. So this is a nice, a nice break. <laughs> no, but really, thank you. Uh, I, you know, I, I looked at your, uh, I, th I think your mi your mission statement. You know, and I, and I really I really like that what you're doing, what you're trying to do. Whether I can move that forward an inch, I don't know, but uh, I, I still think you're doing something quite useful and good. Well, thank you. Your life I, being I boring is the biggest misstatement, Dr. Fallon. Uh, I, I, think, I think your life is more interesting than probably hundreds of human beings put together that, that we know of in our personal lives. Well, I, I came across your, your book quite by accident, and, and I was immediately drawn towards it. It's sort of like we all have, not we all, but so many people have um, a, a curiosity about psychopathy and, and other disorders of the mind. And so Criminal Minds was actually one of my favorite shows. And then you happen to be on it. Um, so can you give us a little bit of background on how you actually, I, I gave a, a quick abridged overview of how you found your scan, but what does it mean um, in terms of what you found in your own scan? Well, what it means, I mean, you did a good job of summarizing it I, much better than I could. Because if I tell the story, it always takes me half an hour, you know, because I'm looking from the, in, from the back of my eyes. And, and what you said was, was you know, really, I, I think, uh, set up the really the surprise uh, because I grew up a pretty normal uh, guy. I always consider myself just a regular average guy, not even not, you know, from an academic family at all. My, my grandfather came from Sicily and lived on the streets from 11 years old on, was completely uneducated, and, and so was my grandmother. And, uh, uh, and, and so I, didn't, I don't come from a history of that. So uh, for that reason, I, I, I still have my Teamsters card. I was, you know, a trucker, and so, but I felt down to it. I think I owe about $150,000 in past dues and stamps, but nonetheless... Yeah, most of my uh, my uh, my life, I've considered myself quite normal. And if you look externally at it, you know, the first uh, girl I ever dated, she was twelve years old. Okay, I was twelve too. Unless, so, uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and and she's upstairs right now. I'm still dating the same chick. You know, this is we've been you know we dated and then we we've been married forever. So. We uh, are 73 or 70. So we've been dating for 60 years. Okay. And so if you look at that, somebody was just, this is not the profile of a psychopath usually. Uh, but in fact, some psychopaths and, and murderers uh, have that profile. But also, you know, I, I've always known what I wanted to do in terms of being a biologist, basically. And, uh, and went right into it. So I always knew the girl I loved. And I always knew the job I, and my, the life I wanted, and I'm still doing it. And, you know, if you look at my credit score and my arrest report, I look like the opposite of a psychopath, okay? And, in fact, I consider myself that, uh, the opposite, like just a regular guy. In fact, I like to do regular things. You know, we talked about at the beginning there, you know, I love the, you know, the racetrack and I love to party and love to dance and do all this stuff. And so just the average guy like that. Uh, but this particular event that occurred in 2005 pretty much changed everything because I had uh, just on a tertiary basis started uh, analyzing scans, PET scans, positron emission tomography scans of uh, murderers, serial killers, starting around 89 or 90 
just as a side issue because you know I'm trained neuroanatomist, so I look for patterns. And so my ex-students at that time, the ex-medical students, brought me these scans and uh, murders, and that's how I started. But I didn't know you know anything more than the average person knows about psychopaths or killers. But it was just another thing, you know, because I we'd study people with addictions and Alzheimer's and uh, Parkinson's, all sorts of disorders. And, and this was just another, was another video game for me is what's the pattern here. And I never, we were only getting one or two a year because, you know, how many serial killers are there? And, and, you know, and there aren't many. In fact, there's less now than there were 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, and so, uh, it was just a curiosity, but in, in 2005, I got a whole bunch of scans with different techniques, fMRI, spec scan, PET scan, uh, with EEGs thrown, all sorts of scans that I, they, that these different colleagues said, well, can you, is there a pattern here? And I said, wait, you got to send me all these de-identified pictures, uh, not one at a time or, you know, like had been occurring. And, and I said, and throw in normals and schizophrenics, throw, try to confuse me. I don't know who, want to know who's who, and then I'll look at them. And I did that. And after this, after a few months, uh, I was able to put these different scans into pretty neat piles, really completely separated, you know, normals from schizophrenics, to, um, depressives. And then this other group, which is a mixed bag of people, which fell into uh, three groups. And of those three groups, uh, uh, they had different common mode sort of problems in the brain. That is, there was a lowering of activity in the PET scans or fMRIs or spec scans and in specific areas. And all, the, all of them, even though they may have had other brain damage, they all had this common mode. And I recognize this common mode as being part of the cortical limbic system having to do with the social emotional brain, that, that limbic system. And, and I said, when I saw this, man, this is, I said, they all, this one group has all the same problem, even though they may have other damage. So it's looking for the core pattern. And then when we broke that, uh, the code, it turns out they were all the psychopaths. And I went, oh boy, because nobody had really given a full description like this. And, and, so, and, and so I started to vet that. The other group had, happened to be a, little, a different pattern, impulsive murders. And then there was a third group that were people that had so much damage. They had hit over the head, <clears throat> alcohol, drug damage. They were disorganized. And th they don't ever get to the point of being serial killers. They're caught very early as adolescents, in late adolescents, because their behavior is, is so disorganized. So anyway, uh, I started to vet that. And uh, I went to different, uh, you know, psychiatry and psychology groups and then law, you know, law schools to vet this idea that here's the core pattern for a psychopath. And then I the first published that in 2005, six, 2006, in, in a law school journal of all places. The, the final section of that paper was my two-year-old granddaughter is a psychopath, meaning that there were these, you know, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, you, if, you, if you want, like my wife said, if you want to find a psychopath, uh, locate an angry 12-year-old girl or... Look at your two-year-old grandson, because <laughs> they'll look right through you. If they want something, they're going to go right through you. You don't exist, right? And it was so that was kind of tongue-in-cheek as a, you know, a, a, a marketing the idea, as it were. And so I was vetting that. And and um, while we were doing that, you know, when I had just started, I had just finished that, and I was just starting several talks that month. 
because uh, it was so exciting. And people I talked to colleagues saying, you got to come and give a talk to our department or the school, whatever. And, but it, it, at that, uh, the end of that summer, or in the mid, during that summer, 2005, and then carrying over a little bit, um, we were also doing a study, which was much, much more important to me, which was we're looking for the, uh, the other main gene associated with Alzheimer's. That is, what is the other high risk one besides APOE? We knew there was something missing because we had it in our mathematical yeah. models of the, uh, the etiology of, mm-hmm. of Alzheimer's that there was something missing as a major gene. So we're on the hunt for that. And so we, we were going through that study in Alzheimer's patients. We had all the patients we needed, but we didn't have enough normals. And I, and I, and I, I did something stupid, you know, but I, I had, like we we're talking about before ants in the pants, right? Let's get going. And so I got my family to come in, brothers and sisters, my kids, my wife. And I said, well, they're the normals because they don't have any uh, psychiatric or neuro- uh, neurological problems. And I don't. So we're all normal people. I said, the one proviso was that my wife's family all had Alzheimer's. And so she was the, this was going to be the problem. Uh, and I said to her, I said, uh, I said, D, I don't know if you want to do this. What if you come in and find out you've got the genes and you got the brain pattern of early Alzheimer's? That, this might be devastating to you. And she goes, the hell with it. This is how she, this is her, you know, even though I've been, we've been married forever, known each other, uh, in which case she would have had to have a good sense of humor. And she does. She goes, look, she had just gotten over a massive tumor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And she was really, you know, this was devastating to the kids and grandkids. It was just awful. And what she hated most was losing her hair. This was too much. Because she's not, she's not really afraid of death or dying, but losing her hair. This was, uh, and, and so, you know, you try to uh, keep light with this because you got to, you know, blast through. And she blasted through and did everything. She did everything her physician said, even had, Somebody uh, come, a friend who's a master of master in, in Qigong. And also, uh, you know, we had started a company in, nutri- in nutraceuticals, and we had this formulation uh, that we, I tested in rats and everything that, did, you know, it's really great. And she took that every day, you know, it was, a, it was an electrolyzed solution of a, a mix of things. And she did everything right. So we don't know what cured her, but she was cured, Right. And, and of course, everybody, the guy, the Qigong guy goes, was it, it was a Qigong, wasn't it? And he goes, I don't, I don't know. And the other nutraceutical colleagues, you know, the company we started, it's the nutraceuticals. It was that electrolyzed methacobalamin green tea. And she goes, who knows? Uh, so everybody, so there was no way of deconflating uh, how she was <clears throat> saved by this, she, but she was. But still, she's always thought, she, so she says to me, uh, I'll, I'll do the Alzheimer's thing because I'm going to die of lymphoma before I die of Alzheimer's. So bring it on. I mean, this is, this gives you her, her character and personality. <clears throat> so we did that, had everybody tested and then took, you know, the, the genetics. And uh, when these, uh, the PET scans came back and, and this is where Jojo gave this. Now, see, I'm killing the story by making it so long, but she told so well. So I was given all the scans of my family and I, I leafed through them quickly because I've seen so many, uh, you know, all types of I- imaging scans, I can tell something grossly abnormal pretty quickly and then go back and really study it. But when I looked through, I was going through this pile of, of family scans, PET scans, and I said, oh, man, this is great. Everybody looks normal. And I got down, and then I got to the last scan, and I said, okay, guys, this is really funny. 
okay, you got, you know, and I had the pile of all these murder scans on my desk at the same time. I said, you took one of the, like the worst psychopath and you slipped it in in my family. And you know, it's a lab. So somebody's we were, just playing a practical yeah, joke. Well, you know, you play a practical joke. Uh, but you know, the only rule in, in science is that you can play practical jokes. Happens all the time. They're not supposed to go on and on and on after for hours, you know? <clears throat> so anyway, so I, I looked at it, they go, and they went back and checked the machine, the providence of the data and all this stuff. And they said, no, that's your family. Uh, now I had to pull the tape off to identify who it was because I said, whoever this is, is somebody very dangerous walking around in open society and uh, probably. And, and so when I tore, you know, pulled the name off, then there it was. I mean, it was, you know, uh, Gandalf knocked on my door and it was me. And that's what started this whole thing. And, um, uh, and so at any rate, the same exact thing happened with the genetics, you know, when it, when we went through the genetics of it. And in that Alzheimer's study, we found the other gene. It was Tom 40. It's T-O-N-M 40. We and another group had found it this same month, I think. And so the experiment worked and we, and so that all worked great. But I still had this nagging thing. Uh, and, you know, when I came home that week, my, my wife, I said to my wife, I said, I said the damnedest thing happened today or, you know, two days ago. <laughs> and she goes, but I said, I was going through these scans of our, you know, of our family. And my scan looks exactly like, like the worst psychopath. And she said very seriously, and I know when she's serious, she goes, that doesn't surprise me. And I kind of. That seems like off. most wives, actually. In, in fact, my wife would say exactly the same thing about there me. There you go. Okay. So there, so it was, okay. So I had the, the appropriate, she said the appropriate thing. I had the appropriate response. So I, you know, I just assumed that, you know, that my conclusions were wrong. The model was wrong. Yeah. I'm a normal <laughs> guy. And then the same thing with the genetics, because I had inherited all these funky high, uh, high violence, low emotional empathy, low anxiety gene, you know, alleles of these genes. And whereas my family, my brothers, sisters, my wife, everybody, uh, it inherited an average amount, you know, of high and low. So that, like most people do. Uh, but I had, like, they're all the one way, and they all lined up. Uh, there are no genes for psychopathy, but there are genes that code for the traits of psychopathy, uh, and that I, that I had. And so I had all the biological markers of, you know, psychopathy, but I was, I'm a, like a regular guy, so I don't, you know, it was like, it, that started uh, me thinking, but we were so involved with Alzheimer's and schizophrenia and doing this gene discovery uh, for personalized medicine our large lab group was the first start in the mid 90s with personalized medicine using these statistical models with all these types of things you know eeg and fmri pet scan psychometrics diagnoses and so uh, at at any rate i didn't pay any attention because we were so busy writing these pat patents and i had started this stem cell company and i just raised like five million dollars for for it and so that's where my mind and heart was, right? This other thing was just like, like bar talk. Hey, the strangest thing happened to me yesterday. You know, and it was, it's just like one of those. And, and hey, I'm a psychopath and, and I'm, I'm a really good one too. <laughs> right. Excellent. Apparently very good. You know, and I, I kind of ignored that um, uh, for, for a couple of years. And then I was asked to do a TED talk in 2009, and I wanted to give the talk about the bias of, of research, of science. I said, we had, we had discovered a way to mobilize millions and millions and millions of endogenous adult stem cells. 
in, in injury, you know, stroke, chronic stroke model and Parkinson's model. And, uh, you know, and for, you know, for that, you know, this research, the, the New York Times in 2001 gave us their Nobel Prize, right? It's like the wackiest thing that had the most strangest thing that happened in the decade of the brain. And a couple of other agencies that said this is the most startling stuff, which we found, first of all, that uh, neurons in the brain keep uh, being generated, all, you know, throughout your life. And we did that, you know, using uh, staining and quantitative techniques, but also this ability to mobilize, to create with injury and mobilize these stem cells and then reverse, 99% uh, reverse chronic stroke and also Parkinson's. And then we did it, we followed up with intranasal uh, injection. So this is where I, my mind was. But so, and I, I mentioned it to her, I said, everybody was really into embryonic stem cell. They still are. And this was something different. So it was, it was hard to get money for this. I had to raise this individually by doing elevator pitches, which I did. And because NIH, they're all into embryonic stem cells. So I told the TED people, uh, this, and they go, well, that's, yeah, that's the bias of science. That's good. Is there anything more personal? And I didn't, and I, I said, okay. I said, there's this other screwy thing that happened to me. And not thinking, and because I, I didn't think it'd be that interesting to people, right? And they go, that's it. That's the talk. So I ended up giving this TED talk <laughs> and, and about this thing with the psychopathy, the story I just told you. And they said, it's great. I said, who's going to be interested in this? I said, it's like, just it's screwball and uh but at any rate so they it was the year so i gave that talk in january 2009 that was the first year that they started posting all the talks on youtube not just the ones by bill clinton and by you know all these you know, famous ones but the the, the schmoes the the, the schmo tech talks and and so uh they apparently published it i didn't even know it was i thought i just gave a talk and that was the end of it uh, that uh, summer, they, they were put on, and I got three frantic calls, uh, like six in the morning, from these colleagues of mine. They said, "Jim, your TED talk was just put on YouTube." I said, "What?" They go, "Yeah, you got." He said, "Overnight, you got thirty thousand hits." I said, "What the hell are you talking about?" Well, I mean, that's the first thing I learned about marketing. That's the definition of viral before things became really viral. You on got YouTube. it. You got it very quickly yeah. up to two million, and I couldn't. I was like, "What?" what are you, I mean, it was it was screwy, but that's when I learned about marketing because uh, the people, <laughs> the people uh, at the TED and, and YouTube, they put up as one of the keywords "psychopathic killer." So I found out if you want to get immediately thirty thousand hits back then, because it wasn't talked about so much. I was I was working with uh, people on this, but it, it wasn't really a big big thing. Uh, and uh, I said, so yeah, just put psychopathic killer and you'll get 2 million hits over, you know. Within so it's interesting that you bring that up, right? Because normally when we describe psychopathy, we actually talk about kind of persistent antisocial behavior, uh, kind of impaired empathy and remorse, kind of really bold and kind of disinhibited traits of a person. So, but you actually go on a limb and say that I'm a pro-social psychopath. Uh, what does that actually mean? And why do you actually call yourself that? Well, I, uh, and why do, or rather, why don't you actually demonstrate any tendencies towards violence or, or severe destruction? Well, I, this is a, a great question because, you know, after I uh, gave that talk, then I got a call from Simon Mirren, who's the showrunner, head writer at Criminal Minds. He says, I know what you're talking about. And he did. He says, you're not talking about yourself. You're talking about 
kids that are exposed for, you know, in, in neighborhoods exposed to constant violence and bullying. Mm-hmm. And, and he wrote that show num- number 99, it was the called Outfoxed in Criminal Minds. And that's when they go into syndication after 99. And it was a, and I keep getting checks from that show because I acted on it and did the whole thing. Uh, and, but it was, it was a breakthrough show because they get into syndication. That means a bunch of the above the line people are making a lot of money, right? No, nobody else is, but they are. You know, talk to the people on Seinfeld who's happy. And, and half those are basically from JoJo's and my wife's view of that episode, I bet, because both of them are huge fans of Criminal Minds. Oh, okay. That's, that's why we're talking. Okay. And so at any rate, um, and I, you know, and Simon Mirren and I for the past 11, 12 years worked together all the time. We've been creating a new series and everything. Great guy, but brilliant. Absolutely brilliant because he saw it as something. It wasn't. It was a story. He says it's not a story about you. You're using it as because you're an educator. You're a professor. You're using it to launch ideas about violence around the world. He absolutely nailed it. So at any rate, uh, so then a whole bunch of things happened. But I, you know, still at that time was not fully diagnosed. Right? I was instead of a normal person. Well, I the next year I went. I was invited to give a talk with the prime ex-prime minister of Norway at the University of Oslo. And I gave this public talk and there was all these academics there too. And I, so I gave the talk with the, with the ex-prime minister and I had to use data to show how we determine people because he had bipolar disorder. So I had to show real data. And the only ones, the only data I could use was my own to prove a point of how we investigate this scientifically. And at the end of the talk, the head of, it turned out the head of the chair, the chair of psychiatry at the University of Oslo said, well, you know, thanks for that uh, talk. He says, first of all, you're, you, you, you probably have bipolar yourself. He says, except you're just hypomanic. You never get depressed. But here in Norway, you would be a bipolar. You know, you'd have, have mild bipolar, right? Because you're always up, 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 you know, which defines bipolar. It's not being down. It's not the depression. It's the up that defines the bipolar. And that was interesting. He says, ah, but we want to talk to you about something else afterwards. So I met at a party at the president of the University of Oslo. And he's now the president of the University of Karolinska. Brilliant guy. But anyway, we met at his house in Oslo. And these psychiatrists, we had, you know, we sat around uh, drinking all his best Cabernet, Pinot Noir, and for four hours. And these psychiatrists and psychologists just cornered me and were interviewed. You know, they're really grinding away at me. And they said, at the end of it, he says, you know, we, we, you know, we've talked to you. We saw your data and everything. She says, you're, you're a, a, a borderline psychopath. You're a psychopath, really a borderline psychopath, and you don't really believe it. I go, that's right. And, and that was the first time I t- took it, it, it seriously. It was 2010. And that's when I went home and started asking first my wife and then people very close to me, the kids, my best friends, brothers, my sister, tell me what you really think of me. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure be- they helped you a great deal by saying yes. They said, they, I said, you got to tell me because I said, the, some cat is out of some bag here. And they all told me the same thing independently uh, within that uh, two month period of asking. They said, well, you know, you do these really psychopathic things. We've been telling you that for years. I go, what are you talking about? And they started naming things, um, uh, different events. And these are not the worst things I've done, believe me. These are the things my family knows about. Uh, But the psychiatrists I know know a few other things. And they had, you know, and they told me the same thing. 
And these are, you know, one was a psychoanalyst and a, 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 a psychiatrist. And he goes, he goes, you know, everybody's been telling you this for, for forever and you just don't believe it. And I go, no, I don't. And they had very specific things I had done. Again, that's not the worst things I've done that you'd say. But the thing is, <clears throat> I said, but and they said, uh, two of them said, what do you think of this? I said, I don't care. I don't give a shit. He goes, that's your problem. You truly don't care. And that's the first thing. He said, the other thing, and I, some of the people I talked to said, you know, you, you have no scruples. You have no sense of morality that other people do. I have a sense, definitely have a sense of ethics. You know, I try, I desperately try never to lie or cheat or steal or do anything like that. And, you know, uh, but I do other things that are, that people are just aghast by and that to me are not moral issues. So I don't have, uh, the same moral reasoning that other people have. That became clear over the, you know, the past uh, six years of people who really know me. And they said, and, and so I was, you know, really wondering what, why, because you know, I had all the biological markers and uh, the, the psychiatric and psychoanalytic reports said that, you know, I was uh, looked to have, you know, as borderline, I was a pro-social psychopath. That is, I had all the things... Pro-social sounds like you're a nice guy. It doesn't mean that. It means you're able to navigate society without sending up red flags. You know how to, you know how to charm people. You know how to, um, since, since regular morality doesn't bother you, you have no tells. So if you're confronted, you're saying, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? And, and so the, nobody can see tells. And so it said, you're able to get away with things. I said, and they said, well, you know, and went through just growing up from teenager on. I said, did you do this? I said, yeah, we stole cars, but we always returned the cars filled with gas and simonized, you know. Did you ever start fires? Oh, man, start fires. You got to be kidding all over the place. And, uh, but we loved it. And, and I said, how about, uh, you know, explosives? I said, I was the king of explosives starting when I was 11 years old. But at that time, you know, uh, years ago, it was like, well, he's interested in chemical engineering, which I was. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, but I used to make great explosives and blow them up and everything because I loved all that. But I never really did anything. And, and whenever we got caught, either stealing cars or causing some amount of mayhem, it was always fun because I never had any intention of hurting anybody, certainly. But I knew how to drive the police crazy and, and, and get kids together. You know, even when I was 13, 14, 15, 16, especially uh, through college, et cetera, and have them organized and move en masse and, and drive the cops crazy or the adults crazy or somebody for fun. And, and so they said, well, you know, you have all these traits, but you probably don't need to use them for anything. And I, so I don't need to get, get sex anywhere. I don't need money anywhere. I don't need, see, I don't need anything that would really get me into trouble, but I have all the fundamental traits. So, but I still score under 30 on the hair, uh, you know, test. Right. I, and, and for the PPI, the psychopath personality inventory and the Levinson test, I score under the clinical mark. So I'm not a clinical or categorical psychopath at all, but I have the traits and enough of them to, to, to make people nervous sometimes. So that's, um, that's when it's sort of cleared up. But, uh, but also, in the, the, the real question was, um, and, and when I just had, was writing the book, uh, two papers came out on the serotonin transporter. 
uh, of which I have the one that's associated um, uh, with psychopathy, but it was published that if you're treated well as a young monkey or as a young child, that same susceptibility gene becomes a great strength. And it makes you resistant to all sorts of things. So here was the thing. And I, you know, in growing up, I had an idyllic childhood uh, with my parents, my aunts, uncles, grandparents, everybody around me was so wonderful. And it wasn't until uh, my, my mother, she died just a year and a half, two years ago, at 102. And, you know, at the end, she started telling me things and how weird I was when I was like 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And she said, you were... You know, she had to tell my teachers because um, she was a teacher. And my aunts were teachers and they were very smart, really uh, brilliant uh, and insightful Sicilian women. And, and they could see this They'd, and they would tell my teachers, keep him busy all the time, day and night with every activity possible, because when he gets bored, he's trouble. Right. And so I spent from the time all the way through junior high school, high school, especially, uh, I never stopped. And so from seven in the morning until nine at night, I was, uh, you know, in a blow off this sort of aggressive energy. I was in, you know, uh, ta you know, play tackle football, uh, high school and college and played college football. I have the, I have the weirdest college um, record that still holds that's imaginable about kicking because I was a kicker too, but I was able to blow those out and I was in wrestling, competitive wrestling, and I was a co competitive downhill racer, ski racer in, 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 a, in junior high, high school, in college and after. So I was able to really exercise this. And I, you know, I got to tell you one a stupid thing here, but I, I remember when I was a kid, um, you know, one of those memories that stick out, I used to work when I was maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine, eight summer on a farm. And I go, you know, and this one kid, the kid that was my, my good buddy, um, he and I would go to this uh, farmhouse and then, you know, slop the pigs and feed the chickens and milk the, you know, do all this farm stuff, well, farm stuff. But every day uh, when, when we went and, and when I went alone, I remember especially, but even with him sometimes, uh, I'd crawl through the fence from where the house was and go across this field. And at the other end of the field, there was this big black bull. <laughs> to me, you know, at that age, it looked like a, it looked like a, you know, a 4,000 pound longhorn. And he had all the cows and he'd just watch. And I'd go over and work in the, you know, at the barn and the, in the, in the you know, around the animals and everything. And everything was fine. But when I, every day when I came back, I'd start across the field. And that, and he, and I'd look over and he'd be waiting there. That son of a bitch be waiting. I get halfway and he'd start charging, chasing me <laughs> every time. And I'd have to dive through the fence to, you know, each time with him on my butt with his, the snorting and everything. Now I'm sure he was playing with me, right? Cause he could have got me, but this bull every, every day was going to jerk my chain. And he did, but I, it, it was a thrill. It was this epinephrine adrenaline thrill that I never really processed until I went to Pamplona and ran with the bulls. I had to run with the band, you know, and I was like, you know, 38 and I had to go and I went with, it was on a science trip, but I had to take this uh, side trip be between where the talks were. And they said, why are we going to Pamplona? I said, I know they got very good beer. So, you know, made it. and while people were doing things, I went off. They said, where are you going? And the red bandana and I went and ran with the bulls. I had, did the same thing. Bulls come charging down and I'm like that. 
eight-year-old kid charging and diving through the fence with a bull on my ass. And so, you know, this is so, to me, it was a lot of thrill-seeking, right? But it was, it was always sort of um, encouraged by my family, too, because they knew that by keeping me busy in this, and, you know, I was in the band, in the arts, I was in student government, all these things, all the time, that that was the way to keep me out of trouble. And so they knew this, right? So this is, they're, they're, you want a psychiatrist, they're in my mother and her sisters. Sorry to break this up, guys. Just wanted to remind you to rate us on your podcast application. So you have you have the presence of mind to to sort of train yourself to conform to what society wants from you. And your mom had the insight to know that you had to be kind of kept busy all the time. But your mom was also responsible, according to your story, for your aha moment with the the three-legged stool. And that that three-legged stool and psychopathy needs needs to be some combination of the neural profile and genetics, which you have, or the family history, which you also have, um, the, the Cornells and the murderous ancestors there. Um, but then sort of that third leg that you're missing is the bad childhood or being abused or, or having traumatic events in your childhood. Is, is that really what has kept you from, from being maybe more of a, a bad dude, as you say? Well, it, you know, it, you never know what would have happened, you know, so you're trying to try to retrofit a story that didn't happen. And so, <clears throat> but I know in looking, you know, at that time in 2012 or, you know, when I was, I couldn't figure out what was the missing piece of this because I had all the biological traits that should have made me a psychopath uh, and why I was not a categorical full-blown psychopath. And that was bothersome because I'm a biologist. I wanted it to be genetics, you know. I wanted it to be the biology, and this is something missing. But and 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 so uh, my mother and my aunts taught me how to, and my grandparents taught me how to cook and clean, take care of myself, do all that stuff. Uh, but also, uh, they're great partiers, right? How to how to how to really put out a, a a good feast and everything. And we always had great parties. And I and I learned that from her, you know. And then certainly not from my father's side. I mean, they could, they could so do they it. They, the didn't know how to, they did not know how to organize controlled mayhem. Everybody had a great time, you know. And, uh, and so anyway, <clears throat> she would come over, and uh, I was sitting in the jacuzzi, and she, uh, you know, she really taught me a love of gardening. So I still have, uh, you know, tomatoes in, the, in December out there, and I've always loved a garden. I probably got it from her. So I was in there, and she was on the other side of the yard, <clears throat> uh, trimming out the gardenias, not the gardenias, but the, um, oh God, I'm blocked on what they were, the, the uh, geraniums. So she's <clears throat> pruning the geraniums there, but she's sitting on this wooden stool on three legs. And as I'm sitting there looking at her, you know, from the, and I'm just, and, and I'm, you know, and it's at a time there was something, and I looked at it, and I said, oh my God, that's it. That's the third leg of this, 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 the third leg of the three-legged stool. I didn't use that until that moment when I saw the stool. I said, it's her. She's the third leg. And, 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 and she represented not just her, but my whole family, my father's side, my mother's side, that nurturing, because they went out of the way to take care of me. And, you know, all my, my siblings noticed this. And it was just by mistake, because 
you know, uh, uh, after my our oldest brother was born, my mother went through four miscarriages. So four years of miscarriages. And then after I was born, there were four more. So I'm in the middle of 10 years. I was the only child to survive at that point. Uh, they went on to have six kids. So something happened. They, they had to write genetically some hours. But uh, so I was treated like an only child. So they, my father, my mother, I was just an only child. And I, you know, and I had these blonde curls and everything. And so I was adorable at the time. I, not the toad you see now. But anyway, uh, and so everybody really took care of me. And, and I was a golden child because I lived. You see, I survived. And in the geneticist I work with, they said, you've got so many funky gene combinations, especially with your mono means. That it's a good thing. You probably should have been a stillborn. So because these in combination are, are pretty lethal for most people. But yeah. I made it through. And so just the fact that I existed made me a golden child. Nothing of what I did. But they always treated me that way. My father never put me down. He's always bring. he brought me to bars, brought me to the racetrack. The time I was three, you wonder why I love the racetrack. You know, it was my... And, and, and my grandparents, everybody was wonderful to me. And uh, this, this positive vibe, I think, uh, must have done something because all the time, from the time I was nine or 10, until today, every year or so, there'd be either like a priest or a rabbi. You know, my, my father was a Protestant, my mother's a Catholic. So every summer, I also went to Jewish community camp. Right. So, you know, just they want to keep everything got balanced. They're in leg of the stool. That's right. So the other part of my feeling, I've got a Buddhist in there, too. So they were very ecumenical that way. And uh, but, you know, uh, rabbis from that time and priests and ministers, but also the doctors that lived on our street in upstate New York, in, in Loudonville, uh, and the adults, would so one of them would always say something. There was a famous psychiatrist that lived across the street from us. And he said, you know, there's something very dark about you. They always said there's something evil about you, even in college, high school. And I said, what are you talking about? I was just laughed. They could never say, we don't know what it is. Yeah. And they didn't know each other. So we're talking about, the, the, you know, the priest that was my, my, my confessor, you know, growing up, but also other priests, all these people to this day, even my colleagues, they're saying, you know, you're like a regular guy, but there's something really dark about you. And, and, and evil or something. And I just laugh it off. But, you know, and my, my wife has never done, she did one interview uh, when this first came down, you know what I mean? Back, it was 10 years ago. She only did one interview. It was the BBC came and stayed with us a couple of days and they were doing a special and it just it did our family. So they were eating in the backyard. And that's when my, my wife gave her only interview. And she goes like, and it's the only thing she said, I'm not doing it anymore. This is it. And she said to them, uh, and, and I, I walked away so nobody could, you know, so my presence wouldn't bother. And then when, but when, then when I saw it, she's, but she said, she says, got to understand I'm, I'm married to two guys. So one, this one great guy, you just love him. And he's very nice and smart, fun. He's always hanging around interesting people. And he's got a great family. I'm sure that's why she stayed with me, too. She loves my family. Uh, but also, she's an interesting, intelligent, fun guy that you want to be with. He said, there's this other guy I do not like at all. I really don't like him. He's a very dark guy. And this is who she's, you know, lived with. But she's known this, you know, for a long, a long time. But there's enough there. You know, you always wonder, why do people stay with other people? And... And, you know, part of it is my family is very interesting. They're all different. 
and she just loves them. She just loved my mother. She loved my father. You know, it was like people would come to our house just to watch the stuff and even growing up because it was always action, always weird food. We were eating food that nobody else ate, you know, and that was because they're from Sicily and they would go out and pick stuff out of the yard. And they were, you know, we were eating, you know, pomegranates and prickly pears, all this stuff that nobody back in the you know fifties and sixties <laughs> upstate New York would have. And so it was that, and we had a dog that was crazy. And so there's all this stuff. We lived in a haunted house. I mean, so there's all this stuff. And so people would just come over and just sit so around. That so is the just... environment. And this is, was, I think, intoxicating to her. So it wasn't just me. She's here. She's still with me. And it, I think it's half because of all the other things. We wish both of you uh, many, many years of togetherness um, uh, there, James. But I think it actually brings into picture a very heart, in a very heartwarming way about the role of nurture, which I think also has the scientific angle to it, which is epigenetics, right? And I think I'm, I'm, and this is where I think I need to tell everybody, including you, a joke, because the very first time I never understood epigenetics, okay? Everybody was saying that it's basically somebody else kind of looks or, or it's the environment that kind of changes the genes, et cetera. I was like, that's mutation. So why is that kind of epigenetics? And then somebody told me a joke and I think it's important to share that joke. And I'm sure you would love that as well. And the best way to explain the difference between genetics and epigenetics is that if you look like your father, it's genetics. If you look like a neighbor with whom you hang out with, it's epigenetics. <laughs> so similarly, I think, I, I think what you're trying to say here, I mean, my really bad joke apart, I think it's the fact that the role of nurture and the role of what family and the role of what kind of um, the diversity of experiences kind of played, uh, potentially played, uh, as, as you rightly point out, with an end of one in a retrospective way in your case, um, it's it's hard to kind of get that, but I think it's as more of a personal reflection. That's something that is that what you're kind of advocating through this? And if so, can you tell us a bit more about what type of epigenetic changes actually happen in the genes with these type of interventions? Have has that been studied and in the literature, or have you done that? It'll be fantastic to actually know how that intervention helps people uh, with with such things. Yeah, to. Um... The, the epigenetics of this was, you know, first done in, well, it was, you know, really found out by Bruner's study back in the mid-1990s uh, of that whole family that was missing the gene for MAOA promoter. And that was the, that was a missense. The, the gene wasn't there and they were all violent. And so that was the first thing. And then uh, there was the, the, the studies in the, you know, 2002 and, and three uh, and after that, they uh, showing that it was the promoter of the serotonin uh, transporter, or, you know, the, the, the promoter of the MAOA uh, enzyme that broke down serotonin, uh, that was a key to understanding violence, and therefore the violent trait in psychopaths, and that that was found too. And then some of the later manipul you know, uh, discoveries were made in rhesus monkeys along the same way, and mostly having to do with uh, the regulation of monoamines, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, uh, that the, the, and others, but also those pr the promoters and the um, uh, transporters of those, uh, certain forms of them, 
flooded the synapses with, with serotonin. And if it happens in utero, then the brain systems that are developing are then down-regulated. So what's all the serotonin doing? Uh, we don't need to have so many receptors, and that's permanently uh, uh, struck in, into the brain, into the social brain. But that isn't the... Um, that, that'll give you the traits of aggression. It doesn't make you a psychopath. But, you know, early on, the first birth in two or three years, if you uh, look in the, especially in the animal, including primate models, that it is the promoters, inhibitors, insulators, et cetera, of those monoamine genes are the ones that can become permanently altered. Uh, and related to stress also, you know, corticotropin releasing hormone, uh, which is important for, you know, anxiety and addiction. And it's not only uh, hypothalamic, uh, part of the peripheral regulation of stress, but also there are the brain systems in the amygdala and hypothalamus that are CRH uh, sensitive and in the you know, other parts of lower forebrain. And so the responsiveness to anxiety and distressors those regulators then become methylated early on, and those methyl groups don't pop off, right? And so if, you look, if you're looking at epigenetics, it occurs all the time. When you have uh, people are, you know, exposed, they, they get to uh, the COVID, the SARS-2, then your immune system, you know, you have the IgM, then you, you have different cascades of uh, antibodies becoming more and more specific, uh, well, those are done by epigenetic changes and the regulation of those genes that are coding for immunoglobulins and, and the stress hormones. Uh, and, and, and so uh, then when you're done with the disease, you know, the methyl groups pop off or the histones change, that's the other way, uh, then uh, you go back to the way you were. So everybody undergoes these, these uh, epigenetic changes from the time of fertilization through embryonic life to childhood and adult life, but it's temporary. But in the case of these systems in the social brain, the limbic system, emotional social brain, especially in the amygdala and prefrontal cortex and insula, that, that those areas, uh, if, you, if a child is exposed to uh, abuse, what is, and they have these alleles, uh, then those promoters and insulators and, and, and all these genes regulating uh, not only monoamines, but the androgen receptor, oxytocin, vasopressin, and the, and the stress hormones, that some of these then become permanently uh, methylated, fixed. And, and so you lose context. You know, there's always time. Killing is done all the time. It's not, you know, you can you protect yourself and your family. You can kill somebody, right? But it's in the context of that, you know, social context and moral, ethical context. And the same thing with sex. Uh, but if you lose that flexibility, uh, then you have epigenetic, permanent epigenetics. And this seems to be, appears to be, but it's very hard to prove this now in all these cluster B personality disorders, the pernicious ones, like NPD and psychopathy, that, um, that, these seem to be permanent, you know, changes. And, you know, why? And in thinking about this, you know, starting like eight, nine years ago, uh, you know, to me it made sense because, you know, if a child is, is, is brought up in an environment, a family or in a neighborhood, where they're always being beaten up or abused and seeing violence, then 
the way to survive is to be that yourself. And so let's change all those genes, become kind of numb to that, but also hyperreactive. And instead of doing what, a, let's say, a so-called normal person would do, uh, you attack, right? So it's the idea, what do you do when the police say, stick them up? Well, you know, in some places, most places they say, oh, they put them up. In other places, perhaps, where these epigenetic changes have occurred, the first uh, impulse is to charge or run and charge, right? Which is not, which is not considered cool here in this society. But you can see why it would happen, uh, that this is the way you survive. Uh, likewise, a, a child with, with those genes who are brought up in a very sweet environment early on, well, you know, they're looking at this is, this is a beautiful world. The way to, way to react is beautifully. And so you become what we could call a normal, nice person. So, I, you know, it's a survival thing to me. Uh, this has not been proven because, and God knows I've tried to raise money for this, but, you know, including several large corporations that you know and are dear to you, I'm sure. And they all are excited about it. And then they, they talk to their attorneys and their PR department and say, you, you don't want to be associated with showing this. And that's what always happens. You know, everybody loves the idea of testing all these, uh, you know, places around the world for this and making comparison of neighborhoods where kids are seeing violence all the time and not as an explanation of something that absolutely plagues the world, right? And, uh, and, it's, and it's beyond gender, beyond race, beyond all these things, specifically to do with early violence and these early epigenetic changes. So it's quite important. Um, I always, you know, thought that it was just the genetics and so when I found this out, all my colleagues who were not that way uh, really let, made me eat crow. And, you know, I was wrong about that, but it's wrong in a specific way. And that is, you know, there are people, the kids who they get thrown down the stairs and they, you know, when they're small and later, they jump up laughing. You know, you know, all these people who can really take a punching and it doesn't change them forever. Well, it looks like they have the genetics of a very resilient person. So now, you know, the question is, is it genes or environment? Well, if you have the genetics of somebody who is very susceptible, the environment means everything, the early environment, you know, very early yeah. environment. But if you have all these resilience genes, it means nothing. So it's, it's a different question to answer now. It's not 50-50. Yeah. It's like if you got these genes, uh, you better not be abused, right? Or you're, you're, you're cooked. And the society's cooked forever. And, uh, but if you have them, uh, you can just take anything. And you know, we all know these types of people. Which actually brings me to an interesting kind of, um, the, the more kind of the environment that we all kind of um, kind of live in at this point of time, which is we see leaders and there've been many type of leaders. And But I think based on some of the traits that you're mentioning in terms of what happens to a potentially a psychopath, those are also some of the traits that are that are present in in some of the most well-known leaders, and also I think at this point of time, going back to your point about kind of uh, nurturing a nice environment for people to go in, etc. With respect to more recent kind of entry of compassionate leadership, etc., is all kind of um, amalgamation of that line of thinking. So, do you have any comments on that, uh, Dr. Fallon, about how? about are there really good leaders, fantastic leaders who were actually had traits of psychopath and then, um, and then were there really bad ones that also had kind of a similar ones? I mean, what are the interesting things that you could actually, 
well, see back, in the trades there. Back in the 2009 and 10, when I went to Oslo and get and uh, at one of the uh, meetings of the Human Rights Foundation, Oslo Freedom Forum, Forum Human Rights Foundation, uh, which I've been part of for, uh, for, for years. And at that, uh, somebody, the head of the Human, the Human Rights Foundation, uh, it came up to me at that, uh, uh, the party. They said, you're the guy? Said said, first of all, a couple of things. He said, you're the guy that uh, is uh, interested in violence and everything. Yeah. And he goes, and he said, and somebody told me you're a University of California professor and you're not a Marxist. And he couldn't believe it, right? And, and it was like, <laughs> he, goes, he says, how is that possible? I said, well, I'm like, you know, in, in many ways, a super liberal. I'm a libertarian. So we don't like any rules on people's behavior and everything else, but we, you know, like a, a real LP libertarian, not not libertarian like the Spanish Civil War. Those are communists, but yeah, LP libertarian uh, from 1970 on, and which is about you know freedom and laissez-faire, very anti-war and all this stuff. But anyway, he, he says I can't believe it. He said, he said you must be the only University of California, you know. So he went on on and on, but he goes. Can you do something? He says, next year at, at this Oslo Freedom Forum, can you talk about dictators? I said, sure can. And so I studied all the dictators that I could find, you know, life information on back to, you know, almost 5,000 years. And I just, I spent six months reading up, you can see in the background, you know, you can, uh, all about dictators through the years and putting together all the traits and, and categorizing and collating them and lo and behold, so there it was. At the, so I came and gave the talk on the brains and mind of a dictator that following year in, in Oslo for the Human Rights Foundation. And, um, and yes, I mean, it turned out, so I lined up the traits of psychopathy, antisocial personality disorder, but the broader psych psychopathic traits. And they lined up pretty well with all the dictators. Uh, and also, but also every one of them had been either abused or abandoned in childhood, and every one of them, and um, and and there was the so there I said, my God, there's this epigenetic thing. So all the the well-known dictators throughout history, uh, except Pol Pot, Pol Pot to the you know until he died claimed that he uh, led a normal life, and he was the only one. You know, other psychopaths have always claimed this, right? I was normal because they always try to set up misdirections uh, legally and otherwise. And I have stories of modern dictators of people I've worked with uh, are similar to that. But at any rate, uh, so I get you know I gave that talk, and then afterwards, I, then I was invited to talks around the world on the mind and brain of dictators. And we did did one a, you know a couple of years ago on Putin because it was a you know Putin con. He was he was the hot item. So I went you know I rebuilt. I uh, said so we don't have his genetics, we don't have this, but I you know. I, I know people who know him because I worked a lot with Russians, Ukrainians, Chechnyans, uh, and Germans. A lot of people in Eastern Europe, uh, post uh, you know 1991, and um, had worked with them, and they and tried to put together the traits uh, either from the podiatrists or people they knew, you know, kind of background information that wasn't well known, and they all lined up. Every one of them lined up that they had those traits, and they were all abused or been. Again, including Putin, you know, and um, so that that made kind of a story. So Pol Pot, notwithstanding, uh, that seems to be a common pattern. Now you can add to this if you do a Venn diagram 
of all these, you know, these traits, the core traits of psychopathy and, and some other cluster Bs, uh, mainly having to do all of them with a, a lack of emotional empathy. They have cognitive empathy. They know what you're feeling. They know what you're thinking, but they don't feel it. So this is a, a trait in normal people, but they all have that, it, it appears. And, and so in putting that together, it's very consistent. Now, there are additional things. Uh, if you add to this Venn diagram on sadism, uh, for example, but that's not a core trait of, of psychopathy. Some psychopaths have that, but it's not a core trait at all. But so, uh, many of these dictators also had uh, sadism. So I had the sadism circuit I had to put in there. Uh, there was also, they all marry very, they, they have terrible taste in art. They, that was the thing that was very consistent. They had really awful. And whenever they had art, you know, they, they, if they had to choose art, they could never buy or choose art, but they had to buy it or steal it. Like, you know, like Goering. You know, Goering loved to steal great art. And, and so they were good stealers of art. But uh, the, the architecture was very clumsy and everything. So that, and they, all, they almost always marry very poorly. You know, they don't, they, don't, they don't marry well. And they have these other traits. So I have the Venn diagram of, you know, the possibilities. And Joe Abrahams, and, and I work with him on his book about tyrants and dictators and psychopaths and, uh, and restructured that, you know, all those traits uh, with him. But at any rate, uh, so I've given a lot of talks on that. And, and, you know, a lot of what I do are in think tanks that, I, that are not public at all, uh, getting information on dictators, you know, North Korea, Cuba, Eastern Europe, Ukraine, uh, in, in Africa, and we try to understand them, their traits, and then uh, try to gently uh, talk people into uh, uh, getting rid of them, you know, because, you know, as a libertarian, as a regular person, uh, we're very anti-violence, you know, and, and so uh, that's part of it. So we have to do it other ways. So when you, see, you know, North Korea some years ago, when all those PDAs uh, were coming down and, you know, in the, um, in the parachutes, well, that was us, you know, is just trying to get, get that information behind there and get them, you know, <clears throat> cell phones and everything like that. Did the same thing in Syria. So I worked with the Syrian opposition and everything, but it's just, you know, to do things peaceably. And if they don't want to do it, like I had mentioned, there are many Russians who like tyrants. They need and want a tyrant. And some of the cultures around the world. So you're not going to say, well, you can't have that because, you know, we're of this culture. You can't, well, no. I mean, it's, knock yourself out, right? But, and, and so, yeah, I mean, a lot of those uh, traits are in, uh, in the dictators that are famous, you know, the famous dictators because they do awful things. So it's kind of conflated. These are dictators that are awful, but they're, you know, somebody the great. But I, I, I was given a series of talks, uh, a, you know, two years ago, because I, uh, I was an advisor and I acted in this outrageous series of 13 films called Dow, D-A-U. And this was uh, 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 made its opening at the, uh, the Berlin Film Festival you know, this past year. And then also in Paris, we opened there. It was great because I have, each time this, this film series, which, which were, it was outrageous. Uh, they had done a, <clears throat> a, 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 a full body cast and face of me. So as you walk into the movie theater, it's me like a real horse's ass sitting there as one of the actors. So they did me because they, you know, they, I think the, the, 
the wardrobe people like me. And, but at any rate, uh, I was involved with that, but that involved, besides these films, these 13 different films called DAU, the most famous one is called Degeneration. You can get that online. It's been very, extremely controversial. Uh, but at any rate, the um, part of that follow-up of the, fil of, the, of the films was a bunch of meetings we had in London. So the whole production company was in uh, Piccadilly, and the whole building, and you went in there, and every time I'd go visit, you know, they'd have the KGB there, and you'd get checked, you know, full body cavity search. Everything was all this KGB Soviet living. It was, it was that way in the, on the movie set. We lived on the movie set. And it was this, all this KGB, you know, Stalin era stuff, a real story, you know. And, um, but part of it was they brought in people, the four main architects of the breakup of the Soviet Union. Okay, and then I, I, you know, I would host the panel with these guys. And these, you know, 1991, they were the guys that broke up, that, that adjudicated and formulated that. But I also, uh, they gave a series of talks with different military people and different um, uh, dictators and overthrown dictators. Uh, I also gave a, you know, I, I got to give a talk with the ex-head jihadist in the UK. And he was the head Islamic jihadist. And he had left that group. So he and I gave a talk about, you know, extreme ideologies from, you know, communism, Stalinism, Nazism, but also, um, you know, radical uh, religious sort of ideologies. And I tried to give the background going back to 1800 with Joseph de Maestre, who formed the basis of all those violent ideologies. And we talked about the mind of a terrorist and the violence. So he and I gave a talk together. So I got to get involved with all of these and in doing so, we met a lot of the opposition groups that were trying to overthrow dictators. And so it, this had to be done very gingerly. But well, I'll just give you one that was interesting. The, uh, you know, the butcher of Bosnia, uh, I, uh, his three attorneys were at one of the meetings and gave a talk. And he had just been put away, you know, basically forever um, uh, for the murders. He was a, you know, a dictator. And for the murders, uh, he... He had performed, I think it was the, maybe the only person since the Nazis to be put away for good, uh, for crimes against humanity. And, um, and so anyway, and he was a psychiatrist too. So his, uh, after my talks, his attorneys came up to me and said, would you, we want you to do a TV show with our client. He's in, in prison uh, on, you know, on his mind uh, as a dictator who supposedly could be a psychopath. And I said, well, sure. So we're going back and forth. I said, you know, he'll do PET scans and fMRI. We'll do the genetics and psychometrics and everything. And, and so we're setting up for like a two-hour special, like a BBC special. And they came back to me and he goes, and, and so they're passing the messages back and forth. This guy's in the joint, right, in, uh, in international prison. And so they get back to me and they go, he says, I'm not going to do it with this Fallon guy. He's a psychopath. I don't trust him. I went, what? Who are you to judge? You know, the guy with the big hair, right? And I said, you don't trust me? <laughs> this is how crazy this stuff gets, right? So I have <laughs> many of these sorts of experiences, you know, working with the people who are dealing with dictators and, and with the, you know, the opponents, and it's, you have to, you know, you kind of, kind of do it gingerly and without violence, all this stuff. 
but it's a uh, it's the it's one of the main things I do that's not on my CV certainly uh, uh, to use this knowledge about epigenetics, the triggering, and understanding why. But it's a loaded deck because, like I said, all these famous dictators and leaders are famous because they were awful. So you know. But I think it's it, it's an excellent point of of the commonalities and how we can we can start to extrapolate some of the information and and so if if all, not all psychopaths are dictators and not all dictators are psychopaths, but maybe a little bit closer. Um, and I, I, this is all so incredibly fascinating. I could sit here and, and talk to you for hours. And as soon as the, I'm, I'm serious about going to Del Mar with you, we've got to hit the racetrack. I want to test out your theory of betting because offline we did hear a lot about, about uh, your handicapping capabilities based on an algorithm that you've developed. Um, I'm so talking maybe, about our genetic studies. Basically, yeah. Genetic, it's taking imaging genetics of schizophrenia and Alzheimer's and bringing it to the track, and it works pretty well. Well, let's do it. Let's make a plan. We'll, yeah. we'll meet in Del Mar and anybody else who wants to join us, and we can broadcast anybody who, who's not able to get there. But uh, we'll, well you can always zoom it in. You know, we can all just – we can watch the, uh, the Pegasus uh, races at – you know, the world champion, another kind of world championship at Gulfstream. That's in January. So you want to do that together. We'll do some handicapping because you were, you did handicapping and own horses too. Yep. So uh, that would be an interesting show on how to, how to kind of uh, uh, X factor handicapping. I'd do that in a second. With you. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Until then, thank you so much for your time. This is fascinating stuff. I want to encourage everybody to go check out your book, check out your TED Talks, some of your other lectures. We'll put um, a lot of those in the show notes. Um, maybe we can even uh, get you to sign a book or two for us so we can give those away. Okay. I'm game. Hey, thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And the book is, the book is titled The Psychopath Insight. The Neuroscientist's Personal Journey into the Dark Side of the Brain. We will also include that in the show notes and we will potentially, we will think of having some kind of a giveaway for an autographed copy of the book. And, I, and, I, and I'll, sometime I give you the, the uh, discussion of what happened. I have a, another, uh, you know, nonfiction book that's not about science called uh, Virga Tears. You know, Virga, Virga is the clouds, you know, we have rain, but it never reaches the ground because it goes through dry air. And it's about... Uh, Vietnam and uh, my my journey back to Vietnam with my brother-in-law, who's an, an extremist uh, uh, warrior, and what happened there in the period of one day. And I ended up, you know, writing a book about that and uh, and a screenplay. And it got to a certain point. It's it's kind of a it's 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 a probably a typical story, but that's a, another one that I'm um, I'm very pleased with. And it's a, it's really about PTSD. But I wrote that some years ago and about our our trip to Vietnam after his, his whole stint there and afterward, what happened afterwards with your fascinating. Our sound editor is Sayantan Chandran. The soundtrack was Digger by Acidat. You can find their collections on Apple iTunes Store, Google Play Store, Spotify and many other platforms. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Music